Well, uh, we find ourselves in he, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 16. Not sure where Hebrews came from, but we're in Romans. Romans 12, verse 14 through 16. Romans 12, 14 through 16. And read along with me. If you don't have a copy of God's word, could you please grab a Bible in the pews in front of you, take that out and follow along with us because this is where we're gonna spend a bulk of our time this morning. And so uh, I just encourage you to, uh, to think carefully about uh, these truths. Romans 12, verse 14 through 16. God's word says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, I need to let you know, I've never been a fan of a sports team that won a major national championship. I can't really say I'm a U of M fan yet, uh, but I can say this. I'm pretty sure, and I imagine, that the thrill of winning a championship doesn't last forever. My guess is that if you are a huge U of M fan, that excitement that you felt a couple of months ago is probably beginning to diminish a little bit. And that's because I live life just like all of you, and the letdowns that we experience in a day-in and day-out basis are very real. For example, you, you work incredibly hard to achieve uh, various goals in life, like let's say graduate from college and you think, I'm done with studying, I'm done with tests, this is gonna be amazing, only to find out that you're gonna work harder than you did in college for the rest of your life. Or maybe you ha have money to finally buy a home and this is what you've been working for for years and years and years only to realize now you're the one responsible for all the home repairs and updates. Or perhaps you finally get the car that you want only to realize that after you drove it off the lot, it's depreciating faster than the clothes on your back. There's not quite as much joy in getting the things we thought would make us happy if we expect them to be the pinnacle of happiness. Whether it's staying up all night to play video games, eating too much, or buying a new house, if we place our joy in the hopes of the world, they always fail to satisfy. And lasting joy comes when we live not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And enjoying God really means that we live our lives according to his plan for our lives, which includes a selfless care for one another. You see, God made you to serve others and to enjoy doing it. You see, joy comes when we live a Romans 12, 1 and 2 life, when you live sacrificially for God, right? Read Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, living sacrificially should eliminate pride. 
It should eliminate thinking highly of ourselves. And so we see in, in verse three, for, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And so every Christian lives sacrificially. We ought to then be selflessly integrated into a local body of Christ and sacrificially serve that body for the glory of God. That's Paul's argument. Look at verse four. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And so living as God designed you to live means that you're functioning selflessly in your church family, serving as you're able, and functioning as God designed you always brings joy. Rebellion, self-glorified living often brings pain. Perhaps a simple illustration is helpful. Imagine that you are a beautiful hand. You go regularly to the manicurist. Your nails are perfect. They've been shaped. They've been painted. Everything about your hand is smooth and beautiful and gorgeous. But because you're such a beautiful hand, you refuse to lift food up to your mouth because you don't want that nasty food to get under your nails. And you don't want that silverware to start scraping your smooth, gorgeous skin. If the hand refuses to do what the hand is supposed to do and what's best for the body and help the body eat, its selfishness could kill the body itself. You see, living for self-preservation often brings self-destruction. And pleasure is actually achieved when we serve the way God designed us to serve and be selflessly integrated into his body. Joy comes when we learn to be well, a well-functioning hand for the good of the body. We realize that we're going to get beat up again, but we do it for the glory of God. Paul continues to help us see how we're supposed to live the Christian life. The next set of commands help us find joy in being a part of a church. So we're going to see five ways to make church membership enjoyable. Five ways to make church membership enjoyable. There are five ways to learn to sacrifice what we think we want, which actually makes life much more enjoyable. Certainly, it makes church membership more enjoyable as we learn to function as God designed us to function. Well, first, a little context for where we're at in Paul's long list of commands that began in verse 9. In these verses, Paul continues to address how Christians are to interact with, here's the key phrase, one another. In fact, I don't think Paul shifts to talking about how Christians are to interact with those outside of the church until verse 17. And that's because in verses 9 through 16, we frequently see commands and words that tell us that Paul's referring these commands to church life. For example, look at verse 13, right? Consider, uh, contribute to the needs of the saints 
and seek to show hospitality. The, the saints are, are the brothers and sisters in Christ. And several times we see the word one another commands in these verses. Verse 10, for example, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And in our text too, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. But next week, we'll look at commands that shift all of those out to, to those outside of the church, and Paul uses a new word. He uses the word all. Look at verse 17, for example. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. All right, so, so that's kind of our big picture. Next week, we're gonna look at what a Christian does as we interact with the world, and in our three verses, God's gonna give us commands for how we are to live the Christian life within the church family. Well, our first way to make church membership enjoyable, number one, bless difficult people. Bless difficult people. So even though verse 14 could be applied to difficult unbelievers, we're gonna focus on applying this verse to difficult Christians like we just mentioned. But in verse 14, the, the flow comes, uh, so, so we might say, bless difficult people in the church. And that's, the, that's the context. And you might say, why in the world are we talking about blessing difficult people? That's not what I want to hear this morning. That's not what's going to make me feel happy. That's not what's going to make me feel fuzzy and, and warm and make me want to come back to this church. What do you mean, bless difficult people? Well, let's just see what God says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, perhaps it's because I'm a pastor and part of my job is to help when life is difficult, but I am keenly aware that we Christians can be difficult people. Some of you are looking around and thinking, man, did you just call me difficult? No, myself included, all right? We can all be difficult people. Sometimes you could call even how we are, we've been treated as a persecution of sorts. We get repeated sinful jabs. There's obvious prejudice against you, a uh, seeming unwillingness to forgive. And so as we are hurt, sometimes by fellow Christians, there's a simple command, isn't there? Is it turn the other cheek? Actually, it's harder than that. What did he say? Two times, bless, right? Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. See, when we've been wronged, every fiber of our being wants to curse, to cry out in pain, to tell others of the injustices that we've just experienced, to wish for the worst on the one who did it to you, to rehearse the sin again and again and again in your mind to force the wound deeper and deeper until you're certain it will get infected and spread to the rest of your life. But in spite of your natural inclination to curse those who harm you, to begrudge the difficult people in your life, God's very clear, isn't he? Bless those who persecute you. Now this sounds a lot like Jesus. For example, Matthew 5, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in Luke chapter 6, 
the Sermon on the Plain. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Jesus reminds us, it is easy to curse. It is natural to curse those who wrong you. But that is the worldly response. Former president used to say, I am a counterpuncher. They punch me and I punch back even harder probably guess who that was our culture admires this no one's going to run all over me and get away with it type attitude this I'm not going to take it from you bravado this "Uh uh-uh I can't believe she just did that sort of thing why because we're inclined to take justice into our own hands to curse but God says very clearly Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is especially hard when wounds happen in a church. I mean, I've had moments where every fiber of my body wanted to be a counterpuncher, to get even over some sort of injustice that went on, to make sure that I give my verbal jab, to make sure I tell everyone that they know that they were wrong until I reread 1 Peter 2. Good, 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing, When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I mean, think of that verse. Each word is so pregnant with meaning. For this is a gracious thing, meaning it is a gift to endure unjust treatment. And I admit, when I read just that verse, I think, what do you mean a grace gift, Peter? What do you mean this is a good thing to unjustly endure poor treatment? How is it a good thing to endure injustice? And when I'm angry, this verse makes me want to be a counterpuncher. It makes me say, what are you talking about, Peter? But then we're drawn back to the example we have in Christ, aren't we? Look at verse 21. For to this, the suffering unjustly, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Oh, the central work of the gospel is about Christ showing us what it means to be reviled and not revile in return, to endure persecution without counterpunching. For us, a lot of the persecution we might receive is, is mixed up with our own sinfulness. We are partly to blame often for conflict, right? But Jesus was perfect. The righteous one suffered for the unrighteous so that our cursing, our counterpunching, our take nothing from no one hearts could be cleansed. Right? What does he say? Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Oh, beloved, this is where I want to live, constantly putting to death my sinful bitterness and praying for those who persecute me because of what my Savior has done for me. We need to bless our enemies, doing good to them. We need to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ who do us wrong and do good to them. I want to let go of my anger as a means to get even. I need to stop grumbling in my heart and grumbling out loud. Because I have been called to bless difficult people as a simple way to act more like Christ. You want to make life in church much more enjoyable for you, for for everyone? Try on blessing to replace grumbling and anger with the difficult people in your life. Well, there's a second way to make a church, your church membership more enjoyable. Number two, emote like emotions are a gift from God. Emote like emotions are a gift from God. Now, emotions should very much be a part of the Christian life. They are part of how God made us. More than that, they are a gift to us to help us enjoy all of life. And yet, there are quite a few popular lies we need to consider before we think about emotions as God's gift. Lie number one, emotions are everything. I didn't put these up there, so just you can take it down if you want. First lie that we're tempted to believe, emotions are everything. How we feel about ourselves, our, our situations, this is reality. In the 1960s, a book was written called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, which trumpeted that the most important categories to consider who we are are now to be therapeutic. Our goal in life is to make sure that we are emotionally well. Rather than living then in a culture that pulls us outward towards our community, our jobs, our churches, we now get turned inward and believe that the true self is found inside And so the solution to our depression, our worries, is now to learn to be emotionally healthy through therapy. But emotions are not everything. They are a gift from God that help enrich our lives and express what we value. And God should then define what is best, even for our emotions, not how we feel in a given moment. Lie number two that we're tempted to believe Lie number one was emotions are everything. Lie number two, we can never control our emotions. Second lie, we can never control our emotions. 
A lot of people think that emotions are completely uncontrollable. That when sorrow wells up, I just can't stop. Uh, that emotions are, are part of the, the non-thinking part of our inner self that just happens like a, like a bodily impulse. And if you ever had a toddler, you, you know why people think this way. There's often no rationality in a toddler, only pure emotions. I mean, I think each of my children at one point cried when their banana broke, right? They're eating their banana, it breaks, and they're like, what happened? Right? There's just no concept of, look, it's gonna mush up in your body, there's nothing wrong with this, but that one-year-old, you can't reason with them, they're pure emotions, right? Seemingly uncontrollable. And plenty of adults feel this way too. Emotions race like a wave all of a sudden and sometimes without warning and we feel like they inundate us and, and, and they, they swell over us and sometimes paralyze us. But what we don't realize is that emotions are actually reflective of long-standing thought patterns that we have in our hearts and our minds. And further, we are actually commanded to be emotional at several points in the Bible, including our verse, verse 15. And so as hard as it might seem, emotions are not completely uncontrollable. They may be difficult to control, and we need to understand, though, that they can, we can learn to control these emotions. Line number three. Line number three, it's best to keep a stiff upper lip. Line number three, you need to keep a stiff upper lip. Think British culture, right? Or, or macho men who don't cry or show any emotion. Or simply people who pride themselves in not being very emotive and stoic. Listen, I'm guessing you probably are inclined to believe at least one of these lies, right? Emotions are everything. Maybe number two, we can never control our emotions. Or, or no, the best thing for me is to be completely unemotional which probably helps explain some of your struggles if you think about it. The truth is, emotions are a part of perfect humanity. They're a gift from God that we should learn to control, to, to let flow and appropriate, and even to use for our good and the good of one another. So if you want to truly enjoy being a part of God's family, we need to learn how to emote like emotions are a gift from God. We know emotions are good, part of being made in the image of God, really, because without a doubt, Jesus had plenty of emotions. So our first kind of sub-point here, Jesus had perfect emotions. Jesus had perfect emotions. Clearly, we know Jesus was without sin, and yet the gospel accounts present him as having a wide display of emotions, like grief over the death of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 35. He, even earlier in the same scene, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was greatly troubled. It's kind of a picture of inner turmoil, a slightly different emotion from an outward display of grief. John eleven thirty-three. In Mark 10, 21, it's just one of many expressions of Jesus having a deep, abiding, and selfless love for others. Mark 10:21 says that. Oh, Luke 10:21, Jesus expresses great joy as he often does. But there's more. Jesus had compassion, Mark 
He had brotherly affection, John 13, 23. Even anger, Mark 3, 5. And after considering the, the wide range of our Savior's emotions, 19th century American theologian B.B. Warfield said this, what we are given is no doubt only the highlights of Jesus' emotions. But it's easy to fill in the picture mentally with the multitude of emotional movements which have not found record just because they were in no way exceptional. Here, obviously, is a being who reacts as we react to the incitements which arise in daily life with men and whose reactions bear all the characteristics of the corresponding emotions we are familiar with within our own experience. And that's why I cringe a little bit whenever I hear someone say, oh, you know, she's just emotional. I understand the meaning there. She's having a hard time expressing godly emotions at the right time, but we can't pretend like emotions themselves are the problems. A good friend of mine uh, said this, as he wrote an article on emotions, Nathan Williams, he said, rather than ignoring emotions or downplaying their importance, perhaps we should embrace them as a beautiful aspect of our humanity that actually enriches life. So we need to remember that as we aim to be like Christ, Jesus had emotions, and so should we. So we also see from Romans chapter 12, and our next point here, emotions help us connect with others. Emotions help us connect with others. If you're not back in Romans 12, go ahead and go back there. Romans 12, verse 15. That's really the whole point of this verse. We're to use our emotions for the glory of God, and it isn't all about self-expression, is it? Emotions are to knit our hearts together. They're part of how we outdo one another in showing honor. So what does he say? Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now you hear that, and you might think, as I did initially as I was thinking about this, that the first one is, is easier, right? It's easier to rejoice, and you see someone happy, and you kind of smile, like, oh, that's great. But what happens when a friend gets the position that you hoped for? Is it easy to be happy when they're happy? Or the recognition that you crave, is it easy to be happy when they're happy? Or the child that you've been praying for for years? I know a couple who had over a dozen miscarriages and well into their 30s, they still struggled to have children. And the wife said every time another friend had announced her pregnancy, it used to destroy her emotionally, like a deep festering wound. Until she decided that with each baby announcement, she would pray, get diapers, pick out baby clothes, and purpose to rejoice with her friends for God's gift of life. The change wasn't in her circumstances. It was a change of mind before the announcement even came that ultimately helped shift her emotions. And weeping with those who weep is healthy too. We're designed to help carry each other's burdens, and that means we know what burdens we're carrying. We know the struggles, the pain that we have, even when the pain comes as a result of our brothers and sisters sinning against us. Even when we see our brothers struggling because of their own sin, 
We don't say, I told you so. No, we mourn. We weep with those who weep. Because emotions are a gift from God and they help draw us together as one body. That's exactly how God designed the body to, le- to act and to live. Just listen as I read 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. But God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We know that our emotions are precious to God. As he says in Psalm 56, verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? May we view each other's tears equally as precious. And may we remember emotions as a gift from God. And still, how do we put on the right emotions? Next point, emotions are shaped by our thoughts. Emotions are shaped by our thoughts. Remember how my friend changed her perspective of unrelenting sorrow over not having children? She planned ahead of time to think differently. Didn't make it easy, didn't mean it was perfect, but she thought ahead and wanted to change. Look at Romans 12, verse two again. It reflects the same attitude that we've seen already. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So if we ever hope to change our emotional responses, we have to actively think differently. It's why we pray and express our dependence on God. But it's something we have to do, not when we're in the grip of our emotions. It's it's much harder then. We can't wait until we're overcome with emotions to try to change. We have to learn to think rightly about our life, our situations, about God before we're in the throes of emotion. And that can take a bit to untangle, but but the Bible is clear. Our emotions flow out of the thinking of our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 speaks poetically of emotions and actions. Solomon writes, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want you to see the, the pattern that we need to adopt to help us to learn to emote to the glory of God, to show appropriate emotions to the glory of God, to help manage the emotions that we have and to rightly empathize with our brothers and sisters. Notice the similarity to what we just read in Romans 12, verse 2. To change how we act or how we express emotions, it starts with a change in our thoughts. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. 
Know the Lord, study his character, his attributes, his goodness, his compassion. Know Jesus Christ and his perfect displays of emotions, his instructions to bless difficult people. And then we're able to put off the bad emotions, verse eight, right? But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Most of those are emotions, not just behaviors, right? And then we can put on the good emotions. Once we have this change of mind where we've set our minds on our Lord and Savior, we take off and put off the old emotions and we put on the the right emotions. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, a lot of emotions right there. And God blessed us as a jumble of emotions and thinking and physicality. Uh, Of course, it's all been affected by the fall, but emotions are a gift from God. Don't lose sight of that. They are a gift we're to learn to use for the good of one another. In fact, one of the more helpful ways to get out of our own times of despair is to stop looking so long and intensely inward and look outward to care for others, to find joy in the things they enjoy, to help carry sorrows for one another, and to be in a community where we are continually aiming to be emotionally healthy is greatly satisfying because we're sharing those emotions with each other by God's design. So learn to emote like emotions are a gift from God. Well, third way to make church membership enjoyable, number three, pursue harmony, not tolerance. Pursue harmony, not tolerance. Tolerance was all the rage in the early 2000s. And back when I was a student at UCLA, we had tolerance seminars. And these tolerance seminars were designed to help us tolerate the LGB community. That's all there were in the acronym at that time. And we just thought, you know, these things are there and we're told we need to just tolerate those who are different than us and et cetera, et cetera. But, But that language of tolerance, man, it is so not in vogue today. It is so far out of step with what we are told today. We're just aren't, we're not just about tolerance. We're about pride. We're about allies. We're about celebrations. Why? That's the only language that the sexual revolutionaries will accept today. And in fact, when I look back in the course of the last 20 or so or more years, I kind of miss the good old days of tolerance, right? And that's because we understand that harmony is different than tolerance. Okay, kids, listen up. Look up here. This is important for you, all right? Put it on your shelf. I tolerate peas. I have sweet harmony with ice cream. You get it? All right? Harmony versus tolerance. We are to have harmony with our church family, not just tolerate people. Look at verse 16. Romans 12, verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. That word harmony could also be agree with each other. Have the same mind and thus have the same pursuits 
run the same race. In the church family, we aren't simply to tolerate seeing someone we don't like. We're to run in the same direction because we all have the same goal. We're on the same team. To help us understand this idea better, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The emphasis in Philippians chapter 2 is harmony by humility. Harmony by willing to give up what you want, your preferences, your ways, for the sake of another. Look at Philippians 2 verse 2. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That word one mind and being of the same mind, it's actually the same word that is translated harmony in our verse. He says, Complete my joy by having this harmony, by having this one mindedness. And then he says this, verse 3 How are we to do this? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The issue clearly isn't uniformity about looking like cookie-cutter Christians or plastic smiley faces without true joy. The way we stay like-minded is in humility, counting others as more important than yourself. And do you notice what this attribute brings Paul What does it bring, Paul, when we are of one mind, when the church is of one mind? What does he say? Verse 2, right? Complete my joy. And it's not just Paul humbly recognizing that you're all running the same race and helping each other work well together should bring you great joy as well. We know we can struggle to say in tolerance land with someone in the church, especially if they've wronged you but that's not how it should be. Look what Paul, else Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Look, I know I sure wouldn't want to be Yodi or a Syntyche, forever preserved in Scripture for the wrong reason. You know what else I find helpful here? Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't place all the blame on one or the other. There's a disagreement with sin on both sides. Perhaps they both think the other is a bigger sinner, Either way, it's simply an exhortation with the same word again. Be like-minded. Harmonious again. Work together for the good of the gospel ministry. Which is far more important than whatever the issue is or was. So beloved, not if, but when you're tempted just to tolerate someone, aim for harmony. Not tolerance. Like two accomplished musicians playing a duet, make beautiful harmonies as you run side by side for the sake of the gospel. Don't just tolerate. That's part of what it means to use your gifts for the glory of God. The fourth way to make church membership enjoyable, 
Be willing to serve menially. Be willing to serve menially. And kids, again, to serve menially isn't mean that you serve as a mean person. Menially means is a lowly task, okay? It's something that doesn't require a lot of skill. It's something that, that few recognize. In church, there are a lot of these tasks. Our giving, for example, is not to be done publicly or for show. Our service is often behind the scenes to be a blessing. And the people we serve, we serve not because they are the most powerful and they can give us something or because they're the most beautiful and we like serving them or because they're somebody who can get us something else in return. We serve the lowly. We serve the weak. We serve those who are struggling. What does he say? Go back to Romans 12, verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now, the lowly can be lowly people or lowly tasks. That's why if you have the ESV, there's a footnote in the translation that says, or give yourselves to humble tasks. So either one is really a possible understanding of this. I slightly prefer giving yourself to humble tasks, but either one makes sense. Interestingly, the same word for harmony that was used earlier in the same verse is used here again. And Paul says, don't be harmonious with pride. He says, don't be haughty in your own mind. Don't be connected with your haughtiness. Don't think highly of yourself so you're unwilling to serve in lowly tasks or to serve lowly people. So listen, if our janitor is sick, who's up for cleaning some toilets? I'm only half joking, right? If you are, let us know. We'd be happy to have you. Come in and fill the, fill the void. Nursery work is unglamorous, but very helpful to the many young families we have in our church. Greeting, security, helping out during the work week, washing dishes during fellowship services, and helping out in Awana, these are not particularly glamorous tasks. Going out of the way to talk to someone you don't know and even willing to have them over for a meal isn't necessarily going to be glamorous for you. But it's what we should do. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, verse 13 says. In all these ways and many, many more, we can't be afraid of menial service, of working in simple, unapplauded ways. See, when we humbly serve, we are never more like Christ. Just listen to what he said. Mark chapter 10. Just listen as I read 42 through 45. You may even close your eyes and just listen. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So be willing to serve menially 
like Christ. And lastly, remember, you're not always right. Number five, remember, you're not always right. I think if we're honest, this is probably one of the hardest lessons to learn in life, isn't it? Especially if you're successful in any sort of way in your life or at work. But thinking you're always right, or, or worse yet, that we're the only ones who are consistently right in our life is a huge burden to bear that you're never designed to bear. Instead, we need to be willing to trust others. And consider sometimes we just might be wrong. Look at the end of verse 16. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. To be wise in your own mind uses the same root as we've already seen twice in this verse. We are to have the same mind and have harmony with another. We are to not be haughty in mind and prideful and united to our pride. Now, you should not be wise in your own mind or in your own sight. The picture is clear of the typical struggle that we all need to avoid. Stop thinking you've got the corner on wisdom that no one can teach you, that you don't need to come to the Sunday school hour because you wouldn't learn anything anyways. Stop thinking you're always right at your home, at your work. Again, this is easier said than done. As we close, turn to the Old Testament. Go to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. To help you identify this struggle in your life as you're turning, ask yourself just a few questions, okay? Question number one. Do people call you opinionated? Do people call you opinionated? Listen, that's awfully often a euphemism for thinking you're always right. Question number two. When was the last time you listened to someone else's advice and changed what you were going to do? Think. Our unwillingness to listen to advice is probably one of the surest barometers of a struggle with pride. And so as we close, let's consider Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. We need to train our eyes to stop arguing for the perfection of our ways and our thinking. We need to train our hearts to stop thinking the world around us is full of a bunch of idiots. How many of you struggle with that? We need to stay humble enough to ask for advice and to receive correction, to see where we're wrong long into life. Don't be like the foolish king in Ecclesiastes 4. So as a bonus, go and turn one more passage, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13. Ecclesiastes 4.13. This is a really helpful verse. Solomon has a convicting word for us. Ecclesiastes 4.13. Just a couple of pages to your right. Verse 
Solomon writes towards the end of his life, perhaps autobiographically here, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Don't be that old fool who thinks they're always right. We pray that God would spare our church family from old foolish pastors, from old foolish fathers, from old foolish wives who never listen to advice. Let us remember there are plenty of wise young people who are humble enough to ask for advice and often see when they're wrong. So any mark of good leadership isn't always being right. Good leaders have a humble spirit, are quick to confess sin, quick to admit they're wrong, and quick to listen. Being always right is exhausting. Constantly having to argue for your views is never fun. But being wise and humble, willing to follow others, is how God designed you to live in life in your church family. Which certainly makes your life much more enjoyable. Oh, beloved, God designed you to be connected to a church and to find great joy in serving him by serving others. But how we serve, how we care for our church family often spells the differences between serving as drudgery and serving with joy. So make, so, so, so make thinking about ways that you can uh, make, it, make a habit, sorry, of thinking about ways that you can bless difficult people. I mean, this is hard, isn't it? Talk to your spouse. Make a few lists of things that you could maybe be a little bit better this week at blessing difficult people. Consider how to emote like emotions are a gift from God. Be more intentional with your emotions. Direct them towards others, finding joy in their joys and sorrows in their sorrows. Think about how you can pursue harmony, not just tolerate others. Be willing to serve menial jobs, fill tasks whenever they come up. And don't be the old fool or the young fool for that matter. Because you remember you're not always right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to study your word, that we've been able to think carefully about what it means to actually enjoy our involvement in our church family. Lord, these things are, are countercultural. These things are, are not intuitive. They, they go against what we want in our flesh, which is frankly to always be right and to always get what we want and to make our feelings the most important feelings that there are in the world Help us, Lord, to put on this sort of humility. Help us to learn to be able to be a blessing to others, even when they're difficult. Help us learn to sacrificially love and care for one another, so much so that we're willing to put ourselves in each other's shoes and, and have empathy with each other for various struggles that we're going through. Help us to always take that first step of love and compassion. 
to not just tolerate one another, but to, to live in harmony with one another. Thank you for the grace that you've extended to us and the forgiveness that comes in knowing Christ and for the incredible example that we have in him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.